Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away. I'm here in the studio with Dan Torres, our contributor and producer. And we want you to know, well, we want you to know, I want to confess. I'd like to start with a bit of a fish wrap. I got an email uh, a few days ago uh, from the Yiddish Book Center saying, Aaron Lansky, the founder, longtime uh, president of the organization, uh, was going to be retiring, and I emailed our Smith College intern, Astrid, who is the keeper of our schedule and our calendar, and said, there's not a big rush on this story, but see if you can get Aaron Lansky back on the show sometime soon. Uh, not a big news story at this moment. There was, seems to be some disagreement between me and how to put this. The New York Times, which put this story on the front Page today under the headline, he rescued 1.5 million books in Yiddish. That's chutzpah. So the story in the New York Times, and I'll read just a couple of graphs about Aaron Lansky, who at 24 years old, quote, decided on a seemingly quixotic, uh, uh, quixotic, uh, uh, how to put this, how did they put this, quest, a quixotic quest to save Yiddish and save Yiddish books. I'm just going to share a couple of paragraphs with you. Scholars had estimated that there were about 70,000 books waiting to be rescued. Mr. Lansky went on to gather 1.5 million Yiddish books, a trove that evolved into the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts, one of the nation's leading Jewish cultural institutions. His quest nearly complete, Mr. Lansky, 68, who won a MacArthur Genius Award, announced on Tuesday he would retire in June as the center's president. He will, however, remain for another two years as a senior advisor. Part museum, part library, part bookstore, part storehouse, the center is now based in a 10-acre complex on the campus of Mr. Lansky's alma mater, Hampshire College, where two buildings are designed to appear like an Eastern European shtetl, a small town. This story goes on. Just a couple more sentences, if I might. Quote, everything I dreamed of, I've been able to do, Mr. Lansky said. Not many people can say that. The story concludes, Mr. Lansky, who now lives in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, says he will have time to read some of the books we've been saving. When he looks back, he added, his fondest memories of, of people who turned over their books, delighted that someone had found a home for them. Quote, I think I'm one of the luckiest people in the world, he said. I got to sit at the kitchen table with literally thousands of Jews who are bequeathing their greatest treasure to me. And then there are many uh, photographs of the Yiddish Book Center. It's a large story, front page of the New York Times. Congratulations, Aaron Lansky. I'd like to turn now to our guest and welcome to the show, James Swanson. James Swanson. Oh, thanks for having me. James Swanson will be speaking at Deerfield Academy, the Hess Auditorium, this Sunday at 1 o'clock. His talk is titled The Deerfield, the Deerfield Massacre in Memory and Myth. And today is the anniversary, February 29th, 1704, the date of what is known in history as the Deerfield Massacre. James Swanson's book, new book, his newest book, he is a best-selling New York Times author, is The Deerfield Massacre, A Surprise Attack, A Forced March, and the Fight for Survival in Early America. The book was published this week, and we are so pleased, James Swanson, that you can join us. 
For those of our listeners who are saying the Deerfield Massacre, 1704, okay, 80 years ago, counting by leap years, uh, is something that is vague in my memory, and I think, therefore, it would be helpful if you could give us the at least broad brush uh, outline of the story, which is fascinating and important and tells us a lot about our history. Please. Yes, well, it was in early New England that we've long forgotten. It was a time of superstition, witchcraft, fear of Native Americans, fear of Indian raids, and Deerfield had been attacked before in King Philip's War in 1675 during the so-called Bloody Book Massacre when 70 Deerfield people were killed during a raid when they were transporting grain to soldiers fighting in King Philip's War. But the Deerfield Massacre happened 320 years ago today. It was a raid on the town by 300 French warriors and Native Americans who came down and sacked Deerfield. They came in the middle of the night, attacked by surprise, climbed the palisade walls and dropped into town, and burned the town, killed 50 people during the attack, took 112 people hostage, including their great minister, Reverend John Williams, and then took them on a 300-mile forced march to Canada, killing people along the way. Of the 112 captives, 20 were murdered along the way to Canada. And then they were kept hostages and prisoners, some of them for almost 1,000 days, until ultimately many of them were redeemed and came home to Deerfield. And John Williams wrote, wrote that great early book of American history, The Redeemed Captive Return to Zion. So in a nutshell, that's the basic outline of what happened. Okay, that's the underlying story. What is the significance of it, or what is it emblematic of in terms of that period of our history? Well, it's emblematic of a few things. First, it came during the war and the conflict between France and England over the domination of the North American continent. France had Canada. England had New England, including Massachusetts. And so there's a long struggle that took decades to play out over the fate of North America. Ultimately, of course, the English won that war. It also has to do very much to do with the Native American tribes. There are many Indian tribes involved in the attack, Abnakis, Hurons, Mohawks, Iroquois. So it's also the story of, of the Native American Indians, and uh, they had different cultures, different goals, and different agendas in attacking Deerfield. Ultimately, it's a story also of erased voices, because after the, after the massacre, the Indians were really erased from the story for a couple centuries. They were viewed as this uh, anonymous, savage force with no individuality, no personality. We now know much more about the individual tribes, what their agendas are, what, what their desires were. And so it's, it's a great story of the conflict, not only between England and France to control all of North America, but also it's a story of the conflict between the many Indian tribes and their conflicts with the white English colonists throughout New England. One of the th- this was just, yes, I'm sorry, please go on. I mean, this was 75 years before the American Revolution. So George Washington, Ben Frank, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, none of these founders had been born. This was a terrifying early America when people believed in witchcraft. The Salem witchcraft trials had happened only a few years before the Deerfield Massacre. People believed in superstition. And it, it was not the New England of the, of the pretty towns, the Revolutionary War, America era. This was a darker, more frightening early New England. It was very darn dark and dangerous, and violence was happening all the time. So, James Swanson, one of the uh, aspects of your book that I found most fascinating, uh, 
probably because of my ignorance, was the violence of this era. Uh, violence between Indian, tri Indian tribes, Indian, uh, uh, indigenous nations, um, and violence between uh, the European colonists and the indigenous people. And it was altogether a uh, war, war prevalent society and societies. And that, that, was, that was something I didn't really realize. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Yes. Yeah. In, in fact, before the white man arrived, uh, the tribes were often at war with each other. Uh, today, there are over 500 tribes or bands of Native Americans and Indians. And before the white man was here, many of them were in conflict with each other and practiced bloody war and savagery. And the colonists did the same when they got here. In, in fact, the, the, there's there's a paragraph in the book, if, if you'd like me to read it, uh, it really illustrates what a violent and bloody time it was, not only between the Indians and the Indians, but between the Indians and the colonists. I, I, uh, I would like you to read it. We should note for our listeners just joining us, we are speaking with James Swanson, whose new book is The Deerfield Massacre, A Surprise Attack, A Forced March, and the Fight for Survival in Early America. And James Swanson will be at Deerfield Academy, the Hess Auditorium, this Sunday at the talk. It's titled The Deerfield Massacre in Memory and Myth. Doors open at 1 o'clock. This is in the Hess Auditorium. Uh, doors open at 1 o'clock. The, the talk, his talk will begin at 2 o'clock. And the book reading signing, the Q&A, is sponsored by the Broadside Bookshop. And w there will be uh, books available at 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 the reading, of course, and at the broadside, broadsidebooks.com, uh, if you want a signed copy. And I should note that the talk itself is sponsored by the Pocumtuck Valley Memorial uh, Association, which we'll hear more about in just a minute. First, Mr. Swanson, if you would be kind enough to read that paragraph to which you were just referring, I would appreciate it. Yes, and this describes the time in 1693 before the Deerfield Massacre, and this describes the kind of violence that was happening. So, seven years after John Williams arrived in town, he learned what a dangerous place Pecumtuck, later renamed Deerfield, could be. On June 6, 1693, Indians caught four women in the fields out in the open. They were not interested in capturing them alive. Instead, the Indians chased down the widow, Hepzibah Wells, and her three daughters, struck them in the head with wooden war clubs, knocked them off their feet, and scalped them. Only one woman survived her bloody maiming and recovered. Scalping was not a clean clinical procedure. It involved cutting a horizontal slice across the victim's forehead below the hairline, grabbing the hair and flap of skin above the cut, and in one violent motion, ripping the scalp and its attached hair back off the victim's head. On the New England frontier, this custom was practiced by Indians and English settlers alike. English settlers engaged in scalping. That's part of in, the, that's part of the history that isn't told when we. Yes, and in, in, in fact, in early New England, the officials placed bounties on scalps of the Indians for the settlers to collect. There were even scalps. Well, there were scalp. There were rewards and bounties for scalps from Indian men, women, and even children. And so. The violence in early New England was extreme. For example, after King Philip's War and the Bloody Brook Massacre of 1675, there was 25 years 
of violence, of kidnappings, of murders. And there was great hostility between the local Indians and the colonists. So it was a dark and bloody and violent time throughout that era. Something else I learned from your book is there's a very superstitious times because when we read the story of the Salem witchcraft and witches' trial, it's always portrayed as an outlier. But what you make clear in the book is this kind of superstition about witches was actually not an outlier at all. It was prevalent in, 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 in the worldview of the colonists. Tell us more about that. Yes, it's true. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a famous relic in Deerfield, the old Indian door, which which survived the night of the attack. It, it's struck with tomahawk blades. There's a hole chopped through that door on the night of the Deerfield Massacre in 1704. Uh, some of the Indians thrust a musket barrel through that hole and fired it blindly and killed a woman in the house. And that door has an interesting saga that, that suggests the fear of witchcraft. In addition to the surviving door, which can be viewed, by the way, today in the Bukhantuk Valley Memorial Association Museum, and I recommend that anyone in Deerfield go to that museum and visit this door, found uh, in the soil of the original side of the house was an iron horseshoe that hung above the old Indian door. Now, today we think of horseshoes as luck symbols. But the reason that horseshoe was up there in 1704 was there was a myth that a witch could not pass under iron. And that meant that with that iron horseshoe above the door, a witch could not enter the house. And also this, if anyone goes to see the door, they should look at the latch, the iron latch of the door. You have to look carefully because it's not obvious at first glance. There are hex signs carved into the metal of the latch of the old Indian door. We don't know exactly what those signs mean, but obviously they have something to do with witchcraft and superstition. And so there was a great fear, and it was widespread, that that hexes and curses and witchcraft and danger and the supernatural were all around. So it was a very frightening time. That's so far removed from the era of the American Revolution. The founders wouldn't have even understood all this. This would have been remote to them. Uh, And that's one reason why the Deerfield Massacre and the history of early Deerfield in the 1600s and early 1700s has been largely ignored or forgotten. The revolution and the later generation of the founders has eclipsed the earlier history and the frightening history of the founding and early danger of Deerfield. We are speaking with James Swanson. His new book, he is a New York Times bestselling author. His new book is The Deerfield Massacre, and he will be speaking at Deerfield Academy at Hess Auditorium this Sunday at 2 o'clock. Doors open at 1 o'clock. The talk is titled The Deerfield Massacre in Memory and Myth, and we'll be speaking more with James Swanson right after this. the talk with you're listening to talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg whmp we continue our conversation with james swanson whose new book is the deerfield massacre he will be speaking at deerfield academy hess auditorium this sunday this door is open at one o'clock i want you to know however and in addition that in that james swanson who as i mentioned is a best-selling new york times uh, author 
uh, his book Manhunt, The 12-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer, uh, New York Times bestselling book, uh, is now and is about to be released as a series. So tell us about that, if you would, please. Yes. Uh, Manhunt uh, is, is now uh, a seven-part Apple TV miniseries uh, starring Tobias Menzies, the great actor from the show Outlander and The Crown. And Patton Oswalt is in it, the comedian. He's one of the detectives hunting for John Wilkes Booth. Uh, Anthony Boyle, who's in the new TV series Masters of the Air, he plays our John Wilkes Booth, and he does a great job. And Hamish Linklater is an incredible Abraham Lincoln. And I've known a few Lincolns. I knew Gregory Peck. I know Sam Waterston. I've met Hal Holbrook, who also played Lincoln. And uh, Hamish Linklater is a surprise, wonderful Abraham Lincoln. He really captures the spirit and soul of Abraham Lincoln. And Lily Taylor plays Mary Lincoln. And so the first two episodes of the seven-part series are going to air on Apple TV on uh, March 15th. And then once a week after that, the next five episodes will, will air. I've seen the whole show. I was one of the executive producers, and I was there for some of the filming that we did in Savannah, where most of the show was filmed. And it, it, it really captures the excitement and danger at the end of the Civil War. It's really true to the feeling of the era and the times. Uh, a president had been killed. And then Secretary of War Stanton, Lincoln's right-hand man, played by Tobias Benzies, had to not only investigate the murder of Lincoln, hunt for the assassin, finish fighting and winning the Civil War, plan Lincoln's funeral train that took his body all the way across the country, the great cities of the North, to say farewell to the American people. And so uh, Secretary of War Stanton is one of the great unsung heroes in American history, and that really comes out. In, in our TV series, so I'm, I'm very happy with that. Well, congratulations. That sounds like an amazing series. Uh, we should note that James Swanson uh, has a law degree from UCLA, and he studied history at the University of Chicago, and he received a historic Deerfield Fellowship as well. I would like to go back to the book and the event that, uh, is, uh, that underlies it, the Deerfield Massacre, and ask you how this story has lived on in American history. Yes, well, it, it's lived on in an interesting way uh, because it still lives today in myth and memory and popular culture. And interestingly, at the time of the event, and for a hundred years, it wasn't known as the Deerfield Massacre. Even the people who lived through it and survived didn't call it that. Uh, they called it the raid, the attack, even the mischief of, uh, in Deerfield. And it was not until 1804, a hundred years later, that the town minister of Deerfield gave a sermon and referred repeatedly to the massacre. And then uh, it was not until the 1880s and 1890s during the colonial revival America, when there was great ancestor worship uh, of the, the colonial forebears, that it became known in common parlance as the massacre. One of the people involved in telling that story and transforming it was uh, George Sheldon, the great antiquarian historian of Deerfield, who founded the Pecumtic Valley Memorial Association, and, and the place where the Indian door is kept. And so only then, uh, almost 200 years later, did it become known in popular culture as the massacre. And that was to memorialize the, colon the colonists who had suffered in it and suffered in the, in, the, in, the, in the settlement of New England. And so George Sheldon was an interesting character. Uh, he did instrumental work in preserving the early history of Deerfield, when people didn't care so much about saving documents, furniture, silver, artifacts, paintings. He 
was really a savior of a lot of the early history of Deerfield. But also, he helped erase the involvement of the Indians and Native Americans in the story. Uh, he portrayed them as the vanishing race. Well, they didn't vanish. You know, they, they live on today. Their ancestors live today. And so it's so interesting how in popular culture, at first it was not the massacre. Then it became known as the massacre. Then the Indian history got lost during the colonial arrival. But now there's been a whole reversal of fortune. And now we hear the Native American voices and the voices of the Indians, which is one of the things I try to do in the book. Let me ask you this. Do you see the story fundamentally as the indigenous people, uh, the Pocomtucks, trying to save their land and their life from the colonial invaders? Is that the perspective? Well, that, that's one of the perspectives. You know, there were several tribes involved in the in detective Mackeys, Hurons, Mohawks, Iroquois, and others. And so I, I see it as a multicultural story of the many different Indian tribes with different goals, different agendas, different purposes. Some of them wanted vengeance against the white invaders, to be sure. Some wanted to, to kill as many settlers as possible. Other tribes didn't want to kill everyone. They wanted hostages that they could sell or barter back to the English. Many of the tribes were mourning tribes, as in M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And so the, 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 their, their goal was to take young captives of English settlers and transform them into Indians, uh, to adopt them into the tribes, treat them as equals, not as captives, not as slaves, to make them culturally Indians. And many of these children forgot to speak English. They spoke the native languages. They dressed as natives. So that all the tribes had different motives behind this. The French had different motives. Some of the French were political types. They wanted victory over England and con- controlling North America. Many of the French and the leaders of the attack and inspiration for the attack were, were French Jesuit priests who s- saw this as a religious war between French Catholicism and English Puritanism. And one of their big efforts was try to capture John Williams. He was, he was a prize. He was the first important minister captured during an Indian raid in New England. They tried like crazy to get him to become a Catholic. They offered him money, bribes. They threatened to kill him unless he did it. They offered to free him and his children early and let them go back to Deerfield if they would only convert to Catholicism. So it was different tribes with different agendas, different French with different agendas, and and in New England, different agendas too. So it's a fascinating cross-cultural story that involves many cultures, many motives, many interactions. And today, even today, some people come down from Canada who are descended from John Williams' daughter, Eunice Williams, who was captured as a seven-year-old girl and became a Mohawk Indian and adopted their ways. And some of those people come to Deerfield today for anniversary commemorations. And ultimately, of course, the natives and French won the Deerfield Massacre. They wiped out the town, they burned it, they killed 50 people, they took 112 people hostages, killed 20 more, and then the villagers, many of them, returned with John Williams to the town. And so it lives on even today in the blood of of some of the descendants who live in Canada. Many of the old Deerfield families are still present in the area, the Williams family, uh, the Sheldon family, many of the families. And so it lives in people today who are descendants of the original people who participated in this story. We have been speaking with James Swanson. His new book is The Deerfield Massacre, Surprise Attack, Force March, and the Fight for Survival in Early America. He will be speaking, uh, 
giving a book reading, a Q&A, a discussion, Deerfield Academy, the Hess Auditorium. This Sunday, doors open at 1 o'clock. The talk is titled The Deerfield the Deerfield Massacre in Memory and Myth. There will be books available. There will be a book signing as well, and you can buy a book as well at Broadside Bookshop if you cannot make it to the talk. This is a fascinating book. James Swanson, we so appreciate your coming to the Valley this weekend, and I really want to thank you for this contribution to our understanding. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. We'll be right back. We'll be speaking with Greg Epstein. He is the Harvard chaplain. He's also an atheist. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 